sve to sam ja kriv što sam slušao lažne stručnjake i sve moguće strance koji su dolazili u ovu zemlju da mi sole pamet. You are a mess guys, you are a big mess and you are a disgrace. Teško da će iko naći nešto što je dostojno da će mene definirati da nisam Hrvat. Od vremena to pamtim za sebe. Mlade ljude koji odlaze će morati u velikoj meri nadoknati high-tech tehnologijama i robotikom. Šta ti radiš? Eto, mama, nešto. Jesi ti mene učio da kad pjevaš bo ne misliš? Nemaš vremena, mi zbog. Protest will not stop until we achieve our main demand. Obesio bih se ovaj najveći luster ovdje samo zato što sam ih bilo šta slušao. Our Balkan Leaders series continues and this time we feature perhaps the most notorious Balkan leader of them all, Milorad Dodik. The man is famous well beyond the Balkans for his ethno-nationalism, crude language and close ties to Russia's leadership. Thought by many to be the most openly nationalist politician in the Balkans, Dodik is a staunch supporter of Bosnian-Serb separatism and continues to threaten with seceding the entity of the Republika Srpska, or what amounts to about half of Bosnia's territory. For years, he has been instrumental in institutionalizing genocide denial and the glorification of war criminals. Things got so bad that Bosnia needed its foreign peace envoy to circumvent institutions and pass a law banning the practice. And then there's his friendship with the Kremlin. Although a two-bit player on the global scene, Dodik has made international headlines by meeting with Putin twice since the February invasion of Ukraine. And he was Bosnia's head of state at the time. His abrasive personality and all-too-common verbal attacks on anyone and everyone, the opposition, members of the press, or representatives of the international community highlight a malicious, threatening streak to his personality, despite his attempts to endear himself to people by fancying himself a decent singer of traditional folk songs. Yes, Dodik likes to sing, often surrounded by his voters and followers.
But it wasn't always like this. When the Bosnian War ended in 1995, Dodik was liked by the West and seen as the perfect antidote to the national ethnic Serb party SDS, whose top officials participated in the war crimes and ethnic cleansing of the country's Bosniak and Croat population. Who is Milorad Dodik and how did he become the alpha and omega of Serb nationalism? We called Florian Bieber, a professor of Southeast European history and politics and the director of the Center for Southeast European Studies at the University of Graz to help us untangle it. today with me we have Florian Bieber. Who else? Uh, hello Florian and welcome to the show. Hi, good to talk to you. Let's get straight to it. So we're here to discuss one Milorad Dodik, the Bosnian Serb uh, representative par excellence and the current president of the entity of the Republika Srpska. If you could perhaps give us a bit of a background into where Milorad Dodik came from and how he originally came to power in Bosnia. He began um, actually as a as a member of parliament in the first elections in Bosnia in 1990 and he was a candidate for the reformist party which was seen as a you know non-nationalist or even anti-nationalist grouping led by the last Yugoslav prime minister Ante Marković. So he was part of those kind of people who were seen as pragmatic reformers who rejected the nationalist parties. Uh, and you know he was not a very prominent member of that parliament but he was there you know not not supporting let's say the, the the Serbian Democratic Party which was you know the main nationalist party of Radovan Karadzic but when um this the 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 SDS and Karadzic decided to leave um the Bosnian parliament and set up set up their own uh institutions the Republika Srpska um he joined them um so he became part of the parliament of Republika Srpska which you know during the war was pretty meaningless and he was one of the very few members of that parliament who was not from the Demo- Serb Democratic Party and he occasionally voiced some very you know kind of quiet criticism of their policies i mean he wasn't you know he was clearly supporting that overall project of establishing this mm-hmm. secessionist uh, statelet in Bosnia but he wasn't you know on the party side so he was kind of in an odd place I mean he broke with you know the ideas of Ante Marković and the reformists clearly by joining this whole project and many of his fellow um, travelers didn't join this this Republika Srpska but he he remained a bit on the sidelines and then after the war he formed this independent club of MPs in the in the parliament of well Republika Srpska and positioned himself as in the more moderate political actor in in the entity he got very little support in the first elections in 1996 in in Bosnia but uh he got a lot of international backing because the hardliners in charge in the Republika Srpska were really not interested at all in implementing anything of the Dayton peace accord i mean we've got to keep in mind that they weren't mm-hmm. the ones who signed it it was Milosevic who signed it and kind of imposed it on them 
And these were, you know, people who were later sentenced for war crimes like Momchilo Kreishnik and others. And so you had these kind of more mm. pragmatic, I mean, they were certainly not less nationalist, but they were more pragmatic, like Biljana Plavšić, who herself was, in, you know, implicated in war crimes um, uh, and uh, who, who kind of took a pragmatic view. And Dodik joined them and became prime minister. And this was really the start of his political career as, on the kind of you know, a prominent space back then with a kind of pro-Western policy, the idea that one has to collaborate with the International War Crimes Tribunal, um, that one has to break with the kind of hardliners of the war. Um, and he had his brief stint as prime minister, but he eventually lost power because he had no backing. And there was, you know, frequent elections back in the first post-war years. And in 2000, mm-hmm. he was already out of office. But um, he had he had a lot of international support. He was seen as the only political actor in Republika Srpska who who was pragmatic and who seemed to be less you know who was not tainted by involvement in war crimes. So he was you know seen as a potential partner, and that then he really received a lot of support from um, from international you know. Uh, democracy assistance. So, you know, in American, uh, the, the NDI, the international kind of supporter of the, of the Democratic Party who supports democratization and the IRI, the Republican Institute, they supported his party, as did many of the German party foundations. And that's what he established with all of that, the SNSD, which, you know, was called the, the, you know, the Alliance of Independent Social Democrats. And the name kind of independent comes from the fact that it was this independent club in the Republika Srpska. And he called himself a social democrat back then, which, you know, seemed, let's say, a lot more plausible than, than it seems nowadays. Um, and, and so he built his party quite, you know, he built infrastructure. He had his, you know, he, he was also a businessman with, uh, with a strong base, uh, in Laktashi, a suburb basically of Manja Luka and where, you know, there were always stories that he, you know, he, he came to his wealth, not exactly the most legal way, um, that he, you know, used his, you know, political connections to enrich himself, um, you know, putting him in par with many of the, you know, fellow travelers, but he, you know, got richer apparently. I mean, nobody knows exactly. Um, but he built his party, uh, fairly successful. And then, uh, he, he was, um, you know, he was still received a lot of support. And then, in, you know, kind of the really, really key turning point was 2005 for him. Um, when there had been these efforts to reform the, the Dayton constitution, um, mostly led by the Americans, um, and they failed. This April package to reform, um, the constitution failed. And that kind of really, uh, brought forth a kind of a, a new kind of nationalist uh, atmosphere. Um, the police reform failed as well, which was seen especially in the Republika Srpska as going against kind of so-called national interests because it was about abolishing actually um, uh, entity police forces. And, you know, the, the police is the Praetorian guard of, of any politician. So this was seen as a real threat because that police force, if it was organized at the state level, could um, threaten also politicians uh, and they couldn't control it as well. So there was a lot of opposition to that. And that really kind of shifted his rhetoric to the kind of nationalist uh, right. So he really took the nationalist agenda um, and, uh, and, the, at that point, the ruling uh, SDS, the ruling Serb Democratic Party, had been collaborating a lot with the international community um, to a large degree because they were basically blackmailed. A lot of their leaders were involved in war crimes, and a lot of the international said, you know, you better collaborate with us to make Bosnia a functional state. 
um, because if you don't do it, you're going to end up in the Hague. Um, and he kind of banked on that because he didn't have, he wasn't tainted by war crimes. He was not in a position of authority during the war. So he could campaign on a nationalist ticket, knowing that, um, the, the, you know, the, the office of the high representative, the internationals had nothing against him. I mean, besides, corruption and theft, but not, you know, not war crimes, not the things which really get you in trouble. And so he he campaigned on this ticket. And many people say, in fact, with uh, advice of American and European Western, um, you know, PR and, and advisors paid for by, by Western democracy assistants, who, who still thought he was the pragmatist, and that he might win elections on the nationalist ticket, but then he would, you know, calm down and be the pragmatist he was earlier. So it was seen as kind of instrumental nationalism. Um, and with that, he won elections and, and you know, really uh, came to power in the Republika Subska for a second time. But now with a, a popular mandate, with a majority, uh, and he discovered um, that nationalism is the ticket to ride. And, and you know, he's never, you know, he's never stopped uh, ever since. So he's been in power really now for 17 years uninterrupted. And he's just shifted offices, you know, from prime minister to member of the Bosnian uh, presidency back to the back to the entity as president but you know he's undoubtedly the person in charge and his party has you know gained never really outright majorities it was always around a third to 40 percent of the vote uh, in the last 15 years but enough with the electoral system to dominate um, the entity and the Serb representation in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. I think what can be safely said or assumed is that it was his incompetence that basically saved him from being either involved in 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 major uh war profiteering or and or war crimes there are documents that show that for instance during the war he appealed to the then government of the republika Srpska to release a couple of trucks of uh you know quote unquote imported uh cigarettes and other goods hence earning him the nickname uh miller Ongil, after the the brand of cigarettes that's quite popular in the balkans everything points to the fact that he was quite uh, unsuccessful when it comes to both making a quick buck at that time, but also being involved in anything bigger than being a member of the opposition, of quote-unquote opposition, like you said. What changed? I mean, how did he learn the rules of the trade over time in Europe? Well, I mean, to some degree, I don't think it's necessarily incompetence only. I mean, I think it's the fact that he was not a member of the ruling party. And I mean, you know, like the the, the Republika Srpska of the wartime years was basically a one-party state. I mean, SDS, uh, you know, was firmly in charge and saw itself as the only legitimate representative of Serb interests in Bosnia. So, you know, they kind of barely tolerated anybody who was not from that party. Now, he could have been let's say, the, the the pragmatist of the wartime years and joined the party, as many others did. I mean, many of the reformists mm -hmm. joined different nationalist parties during the war when, you know, when their party uh, floundered and, and kind of became irrelevant. Um, so I don't know why he didn't make that choice at that moment to join SDS. Um, he certainly showed a streak of pragmatism later on, and that's that, that would be an interesting kind of question to explore. And I think, he, you know, he kind of, he built up his competence really in the post-war years, even his first stint as prime minister, you know, he, he didn't have a lot of backing. He took a very kind of pro-Western line, something which wasn't very popular at that time. So, you know, one could suspect that it might, might have been that he realized the Western kind of the, the international dominance was so strong that that was the only way to make to make um, mm -hmm. any kind of profit. But I mean, he, he discovered really only his nationalist kind of credentials outright in you know 2005 um and and i think a lot of that came with western assistance i mean i think he wouldn't be where he is now without you know the 
crucial Western support in those years between, let's say, 98 and 2005, which saw him as the good guy in Bosnia and which, you know, invested a lot of resources and trained him and trained, you know, helped him build up a party. None of that would have, you know, he wouldn't have gotten, uh, you know, nearly this far without this crucial support. So I think in, in many ways, he was a pragmatist. He was, uh, you know, he was somebody who was clearly not very committed to any idea. Um, and then, you know, he was at the right time seen as the good guy um, in, a, in an environment where, you know, pretty much everybody was a bad guy. Uh, in, and, and, right. and that really helped him. Uh, and that really, and that, you know, that propelled him to the, to the, to the front line. And I mean, if you, if you, if you look at him today, I mean, you know, he, he is of all the, the, the kind of little autocrats in the region, the most vulgar, the most, you know, in a certain way outrageous. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also, you know, testament to the kind of destruction of politics in the Republika Srpska due to the war, due to the way it was created, which made it easier for somebody like him to dominate. Yeah, and um, we know that Bosnia and Herzegovina is a complicated polity, um, and, and that it, essentially there are three main ethnic groups that, that hold all of the power. Um, you know, and, and usually uh, bicker about it amongst themselves in terms of how to divide it and, and portion it out, et cetera, et cetera. How did the other ethno-national leaders at the time see Milorad Dodik when he first appeared? When he first appeared, this was an environment where where all throughout Bosnia and uh, Herzegovina, I mean, the nationalist parties were really, I mean, and the, the original ones, you know, not their copycats from later on, but Hadeze and SDA were really, uh, you know, kind of dominating the electorate to a degree which wasn't imaginable today. I mean, how does they gain something like 80% of their or more of their electorate and, and, and SDA similar shares? Um, because these are the first post-war years when, uh, you know, there was very little free media, critical media, um, and very little space for, you know, even the most modest critical voices. Um, and so in that sense, uh, I think the nationalist parties, you know, didn't like Dodik um, because, you know, they accepted the logic that the, the other would be represented by, you know, an equally homogenous uh, kind of nationalist party who they hated, but they loved to hate in a, in a certain way. Um, mm -hmm. And he didn't fit into all of that. Now, in 2000, we had a big electoral breakthrough in the federation where, uh, for the first time, Social Democrats, the SDP, as well as other few other seemingly more mo more moderate, more civic-oriented parties did well. This was actually, ironically, the elections where Dodik lost in the Republika Srpska. So this is kind of this dynamics which we have in Bosnia-Herzegovina very often that, um, you know, you, that the more moderate, more kind of civic parties do well in one entity and they do badly in the other. And that, of course, mm -hmm. you know, helps or makes it very hard for them to kind of reach out. And, you know, I think in 2000 was probably a, a unique chance to actually... Um, you know, if, if Dodik had done well back then, that could have been, you know, one of those transformative moments in many ways, which was lost, but it also was lost in the Federation because the parties who were civic were civic in very different ways. And, you know, it included mm -hmm. parties like the Stranka Zabeha, a party for BNH, which was led by former um, foreign minister Haris Elijic, who presented himself mm -hmm. more civic, but, you know, he was also a hardliner in many ways. And I mean, it was his, uh, he helped defeat the um, the constitutional reform uh, of, of 2006, which, you know, in, in retrospect, seemed like uh, a terrible waste of an opportunity because the country would have been a lot better um, organized in many ways had that passed. So, so in that sense, there was, you know, there was very little civic space and certainly he was not seen, 
you know, who was always seen with some suspicion um, by parties, let's say more civic-oriented parties based in Sarajevo, because he did decide to leave, uh, you know, Sarajevo at the beginning of the war and join Republika Srpska. So, they, you know, he, he was never mm-hmm. seen as a genuine, you know, civic um, party or politician um, by those uh, who were, you know, who, 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 you know, in essence rejected the very existence of Republika Srpska as, uh, you know, a wartime project based on ethnic cleansing and mass murder. And at that time, he was also very cognizant of the role of the Bosnian Serb leadership in the war. And at the time, he uh, would comment on, on, on the genocide in Srebrenica by saying genocide did take place in Srebrenica and, and all of that. And, and now we have basically a, a completely different person. Do you think that the transformation that he undertook from this sort of breath of fresh air, according to the former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, to what is probably the most nationalist politician in the Balkans. A lot of people seem to think that this is all for show. But A, do you think that this was always a part of who he is? And B, is is there such a thing as being a nationalist for show? I mean, the, the, that debate, um, and, you know, it's it, it's it's certainly been you know out there ever since he began his political career. It reminds me a lot of the discussion people had about Slobodan Milosevic, you know, who who began as a as a communist apparatchik without any indication that he had any, you know, cared about nationalist issues. And then he discovered mm-hmm. them, and then people were like, well, is he really a nationalist, or is he just playing to be a nationalist? And, you know, to some degree, it's it's a you know we never we will never know because we can't look into his head. Um, I mean it's a psychological phenomena. Um, you know it's it's clear that Dodik switched his positions dramatically. So yes, he did you know he did acknowledge uh, genocide in Srebrenica. He did acknowledge war crimes. He did call for for Serbian war criminals to be tried at the ICTY. Um, so. And, you know, he now states exactly the opposite. So he's very inconsistent. Now, was he lying the first time mm-hmm. around or is he lying now or is he truthful to his own convictions? It's really impossible to tell. But I do think that, you know, even if, even if it began as a, as a, you know, you know, strategic choice rather than a, you know, kind of a commitment to the, to the overall idea, it becomes a reality after a while. You're kind of caught in your own beliefs. Uh, and I think that, you know, if you look at Sobodan Milosevic, the way he presented himself, for example, at the trial at the ICTY, is a perfect case in point. I mean, he, you know, he began maybe by pragmatically, you know, choosing nationalism, but in the end, when he was defending himself, he was, you know, defending himself in a nationalist kind of line. Um, so he, in a certain mm-hmm. way, started to believe his own narrative. Uh, and I think this is what happens. If you're, you know, if you, if you, if you promote these narratives, if you're surrounded by people who believe you for this reason, if the success is based on all of that, you know, you're probably not going to go to bed at night saying, haha, I've tricked them one more day. Um, but you, mm-hmm. I think you start believing it yourself. And, uh, this is, this is, I think, what, what what's going on. You know, we probably will never find out what, who is the real Milorad Dodik. Um, I think what we yeah. can say, he's certainly pragmatic um, about his choices, but I don't think that you know that he's gonna you know if he discovers that it's not you know no longer his interest, he's, he can just drop it. Uh, he could just say tomorrow, oh, you mm-hmm. know, just kidding. You know, actually, Srebrenica was a genocide. Like these things, you know, there, there isn't this kind of complete arbitrariness. Um, you know, the shift he made in 2005 was very much based on, you know, a certain set of circumstances. Um, and But, you know, he's been a much longer now uh, 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 secession-demanding nationalist politician than he's been uh, 
you know, quote unquote pragmatic one. So from that point of view, I, I don't, you know, I don't think he can switch back, um, to, to the, to the line he held in those, you know, in the first post-war years. Yeah, and the question is, of course, does it even matter? Because we're in 2022 now. Uh, it's been 30 years since the war, meaning you have an entire generation, not just one, that was born during or after the war, grew up in the environment that they grew up in. And all they know is basically what they hear from Milo Dodik now. I don't think that many many of his voters even think about what Milo Dodik said back in 1997 or 2003, for that matter. I think what matters is the here and now, and the here and now is pretty, pretty awful. I mean, so does it even matter? No, I mean, it, it certainly doesn't matter. I mean, he's clearly not a politician who could, you know, take um, take the country back from the brink he's brought it to. So, you know, it's very clear that his coming to power was certainly a set of certain, you know, circumstances which which allowed him to make this shift and to to take this line. But the damage is done in many ways. And and I mean, mm-hmm. I think he's been, you know, he's been the one who's been, you know, kind of not single-handedly, but but you know, a, a prime culprit in uh, you know making sure that Bosnia as a state does not work well in the last fifteen years. That there is very little space to discuss making the country more functional and delivering better. You know, kind of delivering on issues which care, which matter for most people. So in that sense, you know, that, that responsibility lies on his shoulders. Not solely, of course, we know that in the other, you know, other political parties have been equally you know, responsible, but he's really the one who's, who's kind of re-injected this nationalist rhetoric of, uh, you know, threatening secession, mm-hmm. um, you know, building good ties with Russia. All of that really has has had such a such a negative impact on the country, and has also helped to sustain all you know nationalists on the other side. I mean, this is the problem that like you know one nationalist helps uh, others to build their legitimacy on, and he's been helping for mm-hmm. you know both uh, HDZ and SDA and other nationalists in the country to to justify their very existence. So in that sense. That is a you know that is a legacy which he cannot escape and that you know and in a certain way Bosnia has been you know made a, a worse country um, in the last fifteen years for for you know due to his uh, you know due to his role. Let's talk a bit about his appeal. On the surface, I think especially to to those who are not so privy to like the ins and outs of Bosnian politics, he seems a, like a bit of an odd type. He's he's quite large in appearance he's he he mumbles when he speaks he's barely uh, intelligible to most people he's often very uh, brash rude even especially to journalists especially to female journalists he tends to go around sing folk songs get drunk midday call his mother on the phone pull all kinds of publicity stunts of that of that sort you know stop the a presidential limo in the middle of the street and, and go for some grilled meat and then film that and post it on social media or have someone post it on social media. He has his own accordion player, apparently, that he pays out of his pocket that goes around uh, with him and follows him during political rallies and such. And yet he still manages to um, attract a lot of support. How would you explain that to someone who's not necessarily in the know when it comes to 
what works and what doesn't work in Bosnian and in Bosnian politics. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, he's a model of, you know, what one could, could call Bahatokratia. So uh, Bahato is like some kind of, you know, vulgar, aggressive uh, personality, which you think he reflects very well. And, you know, this kind of, he made this this kind of personality into his whole kind of charm. And you're absolutely right. It's very hard to see how this, you know, could charm voters. But I mean, so, I mean, there, there are a couple of elements. One one part is conviction. One part is is kind of threatening. I mean, he's always seems half threatening. And I mean, he's kind of gone on the record mm -hmm. also for, uh, you know, openly stating that, uh, you know, of course, he's tapping the phones of opposition politicians. Of course, he's listening to what they're saying. Yeah. He's gone on record saying, of course, you're going to fire people who are not in your party from the public service. So, you know, the kind of things which other, you know, other leaders in the region like to do, but not talk about, he actually openly states. Um, and, you know, to some degree, um, it, it suggests the level of control he has over, over Republika Subska. It also suggests, of mm -hmm. course, there's always an implicit threat with all of that, which kind of says, you know, I'm in charge and, you know, you're in trouble if you don't, you know, if you don't join me. And, um, And I think this is really, this is really part of the, the, the problem is that, you know, there is a strong level of coercion for his power. Um, you know, in the sense that if you're working in the public service, you know, you are, you are maybe not forced, but you're certainly encouraged in a very not gentle way to vote for his party. So it, it you know, it is working in the way in which all captured states operate, um, including, you know, in, in neighboring countries, uh, where, you know, you, your political choices are not made based on your conviction very often, but based on what you think you should do because mm -hmm. you're in trouble if you don't. So, you know, and th so that's got very little to do with his appeal as a, as, as a candidate, but more with his ability to control the institutions and also kind of threaten his voters. I mean, and that's what I see him often doing. Um, and then the other element is certainly that, you know, he, he's appealing to, you know, an entity, you know, voters in an entity, which is mostly rural, which has been, you know, kind of built on this, you know, built on war crimes, um, where, where, where there's this kind of constant, you know, anxiety about the legitimacy of existing as an entity, because, you know, outside, you know, it's, it's, it's challenged by, by, you know, the war crimes, which have been investigated. Um, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very, um, in a certain way, difficult political environment to have a pluralist, um, you know, space. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, mostly rural, lots of people have left. I mean, we've got to keep in mind, you know, on the territory of Republika Srpska, uh, at the beginning of the war, it was 54% or so uh, Serb population. Many of those Serbs have left as well. I mean, it's that it's a depopulated area with few urban centers, mm -hmm. uh, one where somebody who also appeals to this kind of um, folksy, uh, I'm, you know, I'm your, you know, I'm the local You know, it's it's a little bit like the the the, the local mayor in a certain way. You know, he kind of mm -hmm. he takes uh, yeah. citizens. You know, he's he's like a man of the people. You know, yes, he gets drunk just like everybody else does. He listens to the music like everybody else. You know, so so he you know he, there's a whole range of similar kind of mayors or local politicians you also find you know in in, in neighboring Serbia like the longtime mayor of of Jagodina. Uh, Dragan Markovic Palma, you know, it's this kind of type of folksy, folksy, vulgar, uh, you know, uh, sexist, you know, the whole, the whole list, but that's part of his right. appeal. I mean, I think it's, so what we consider mm -hmm. to be, you know, rather strange why people would support that. I mean, he cultivates that because he realizes that this appeals among a significant part of the electorate. 
mm-hmm. and those you know who who are you know who are who are shocked by this and who consider it vulgar are not the ones who are ever going to vote for him anyhow. That ties in, I think, with his um, very public support of Vladimir Putin and 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 Russia, especially now, which also sounds ludicrous. I mean, Bosnia and Herzegovina is one of the few countries in Europe that has not instituted any sanctions against Russia since the beginning of the full-scale invasion in February. Yet, when nobody wanted to talk to the Kremlin, he was the one who picked up the phone and called the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Sergei Lavrov, allegedly to talk about economy in March. Then he went uh, to St. Petersburg, saw, met with Putin once, then went again to Moscow to meet with him again. What's the deal? How do you how do you explain that? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, there there are a couple of reasons. I mean, he's 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 been you know kind of over the years cultivating this attempt to kind of position himself as a as a close ally of Putin. I mean, to some degree, there there are always these jokes that you know very often he went to Moscow, wanted to you know go to Moscow, and you know Putin didn't really want to meet him, and he was kept waiting and mm-hmm. you know kind of yeah. wandering around Moscow. Um, and you know, I think it's got a lot to do with you know with with. On one side, it, it plays to like this, you know, kind of cultivated sentiment that Russia is this protector of Serbs, um, which you know, you know, mm-hmm. we have similar politicians in Serbia playing to the same card. He's like, you know, kind of doing it more openly, unabashedly, kind of playing on this. It also, of course, gives him like a larger than life kind of uh, place because you know he's like, you know, he's a, he's a local politician in Bosnia, uh, and it, you know, he's received by Putin, so it makes him kind of like a politician. Of you know world rank so to speak, and so it's it also helps mm-hmm. to elevate him uh, in many ways, and I think this is what what uh, helps him in, in, in the in, you know among the electorate. Um, so and and again, I mean, he plays on all of the 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 ideas that you know the the anti Western sentiments, the fact that uh, you know uh, the U.S. and NATO intervened in 1995 to help end the war in Bosnia Herzegovina. So all of this are you know these themes which he's using and Russia as the 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 ally or supporter of of interest of Republika Srpska, and and so this this is really what he's what he's using, um, and so it's you know it it serves him it serves him well I think in his electorate um, that that his kind of pro Russian stance he, he doesn't lose anything and um, you know he 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 apparently can get away with it I mean that's the other thing like he doesn't you know he's he's you know continues to be in charge there is no um, you know, there's no obvious um, consequence for doing that. So why not do it? No, that's fair. But there has seemed to have been a change in the way that Alexander Vucic, the president of Serbia, sees him. And there is a sense that Lodik went from a close ally to not necessarily a persona non grata, but definitely not one of Vucic's favorites. Well, I mean, their relationship has always been complicated. I mean, Dodik openly supported um, Boris Tadic um, in the elections, which were eventually won by by Tomislav Nikolic and the the SNS. So he was very, uh, very, um, you know, kind of critical of of, uh, of Vucic and his party um, in 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 the run up to the elections uh, in two thousand, uh, you know, two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, um, and you know, this was not based on any ideology, but this was kind of pragmatic. He had good ties with Boris Tadic, um, with the Democratic Party in Serbia. So this all, all, again shows his pragmatism. Eventually, you know, kind of like it's not about ideas um, because certainly SNS was more nationalist than than the Democratic Party was in Serbia at the time but um, 
but pragmatism. So even in the you know when when Vucic was was rising, you know th that relationship was 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 difficult because uh, you know Dodik mm -hmm. had to make a you know uh, a, you know turnaround to to um, you know to kind of butter up to <laughs> to to Vucic and that worked. But it was you know it was it was never an easy relationship because I mean Vucic doesn't really tolerate any competitors and Dodik isn't really a competitor, but you know he he's he's another. You know, let's say, quote unquote, Serb leader who claims, you know, the Serb national mantle. And so this mm. is something which uh, is not, you know, not too much something which Vucic likes. And, you know, and Vucic likes to, you know, kind of manage, you know, he, he's a micromanager. He's somebody who likes to be in charge. And then having a bit of a loose gun uh, in, in, in the in the form of, of, of Milorad Dodik is something which is not, you know, what he likes because he can't control him completely. And Dodik has been always building kind of his ties with Russia independently of Serbia. Um, so mm -hmm. um, it, it's, um, it, you know, it's it just, it, it's just somebody who is not under full control of um of of Vucic and I think this of course you know and Vucic has been you know unlike Dodik on one side you know trying to maintain ties with Russia but also not kind of openly embracing it to the extent which Dodik has been doing it since the beginning of the war um, but having this right. much more ambivalent relationship so certainly that you know you can see that there are different approaches I mean I think but if, you know it's it's about personality and it's about the the bigger mm -hmm. brother trying to make sure that the smaller brother and I'm speaking just in the, so, terms of the size of the country not of the two folks who are kind of similar in person in stature um, um, you know kind of making sure that the, the, the guy is not not kind of doing things which might hurt him uh, politically yeah I think Dodik's uh, nickname Lakhtashenko which is a portmanteau of um, his hometown, Laktashi, and uh, the Belarus president, Alexander Lukashenko, is, is quite fitting there, isn't it? Yes, I mean, he, yeah, exactly, because, uh, you know, it, it kind of also, I mean, this whole, you know, references to Laktashi, where he began his career, also, of course, kind of emphasizes this, you know, in a certain way, kind of small town, um, you know, politician, um, which is, mm -hmm. you know, on one side, very authoritarian, but in the end, also kind of very small townish. Uh, and of course, I mean, as we, as we you know, uh, as we said, like you know, this is this is part of his appeal. He's he's playing to this, you know, to this small town. You know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't advertise how many foreign languages he's learning. Unlike Vucic, who you know keeps learning new languages, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't play on on you know having read Weber or or dabble in in uh, in wine mm. knowledge. I mean, he you know he sticks to his rakia and his uh, accordion and his local politics, and that's his appeal. He doesn't try to be. In a certain way, a world leader, but being received by Putin is about like the the kind of level of ambition uh, he has. No, and he said it quite openly numerous times uh, when, when say uh, sanctions were introduced against him by by Germany. He said, "Well, I don't I don't care because I don't want to go to Germany. I've been to Germany like eight years ago, and." Uh, for whatever, a few days or something, and, and I don't want to go back, yeah. so I don't care. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, which of course is, um, you know, that's that's certainly his the way he's playing it. Um, and uh, you know, this is uh, this is quite a different line. I mean, and that's where you can see a big difference to to Serbia, where uh, you know, um, Vucic has always tried to keep the kind of also EU side of the story open. I mean, you know, he he never tried to alienate. Uh, his, you know, partners or you know, supporters in many ways in the West, in the way in which in, in the way in which uh, Dodik has been doing it. I mean, ironically, Dodik was, you know, in a certain way, 
you could say they have a lot of similarities in their career that their career really took off when they got Western support. I mean, you know, Vucic's career uh, took mm. off when he broke with the radical party with a lot of Western support in many ways in the embassies in Belgrade um, to make it make him a pragmatic reformer, right? And, and it's exactly the same story of Dodik who got a lot of Western support to be the pragmatic reformer in the Republika Srpska. But um, the difference is that, that uh, Vucic never, you know, made that kind of, you know, while taking on nationalist rhetoric and bringing in nationalists in his in his entourage, he himself made sure to never, you know, never burn that bridge uh, in a certain way. While um, while uh, Dordic has certainly, you know, burned that bridge and it doesn't care. Oh yeah, absolutely. And there there are so many different examples. There's the there's the whole issue of getting into a. a, a almost a fist fight with the uh, at least a verbal one with the uh, British ambassador to Bosnia and uh, making ludicrous claims about how he's going to get kidnapped by the British special forces and taken to a black side and you know tortured with loud music and bright lights and things like that and uh, Bosnia just had elections uh, earlier this this year in October and although everybody expected Dodik to lose at least uh, you know the, the seat of the president, uh, the Republika Srpska, so the entity uh, presidency. He won, and now he's basically running the place. Is there anyone who can who can unseat him in in the near future, uh, at least in your opinion? I think if you look at the results, I mean, he's always he's not been winning with large margins. I mean, he's not having the kind of results which. Uh, which um, you know Vucic has in um, in Serbia. I mean, you, you got to keep in mind that, um, for example, the the way the elections work is that it's the um, you know it's it's based on um, the largest number of votes. There's not a two round system, so he doesn't get fifty percent of the vote. If you look in the in the parliament, you know his um, his party is not you know is 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 the largest, but it's not. Overwhelmingly, so you don't have this kind of super majority for him. You have, mm. um, you know, you have uh, in in Serbia. Um, so from that point of view, I would say, you know, he's not that. You know, he's 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 just a little bit better, doing a little bit better than all the others. Um, but it's not really because he is doing so well. Um, you know, so it, the, his elections to the presidency were, you know, hotly contested. There were a lot of suspicions about. Uh, you know, abuse, um, and he got less mm-hmm. than half yeah. of the vote. You know, I mean, uh, even in his, you know, let's say in, in the outcome which 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 confirmed him, and he's not been getting a majority vote. So in that sense, um, he is he is vulnerable, and he's been. You know, I think it takes a lot of the you know entity resources, um, you know, the kind of dependency of people on on jobs and so on to keep him in power. So you know, in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it's just a matter of time that that his, you know, his that that he's going to lose an election. So I don't know who's going to be the candidate, uh, you know, um, to 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 achieve it in the end. But I think, um, you know, the elections show um, over the years that that he's been declining in support and that um, and that it's always, you know, kind of pretty pretty tight. Um, so from that point of view, I don't think mm. I don't think he's, you know, the kind of he he seems more powerful in terms of the level of control he exercises than he actually is when we look at when we look at 
um, the reality of the electoral results. I mean, you know, his party got 34% of the vote in the last elections. Yes, that's far ahead from the next, but it's only a third of the votes of the whole entity, you know, which voted for his party. And, and so from that point of view, I think, I think he's, he's definitely, um, you know, quite vulnerable in many ways. Um, and I think it's uh, also striking that, that in fact, his, you know, candidate for the presidency, so uh, Jair Katsvianovich, who was pre- previously at the entity level, you know, got more votes than he did. Um, and this is kind of what we saw with some of the other kind of nationalist party candidates that often, uh, you know, the parties did better or other candidates did better than the kind of most prominent ones. I mean, you know, after all, in the elections, um, as SDA's candidate, uh, Bakir Izebegovic, lost. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the time of this kind of unchecked uh, power of, of him might be coming to an end and it's just a matter of luck who, mm-hmm. who who runs up to be the candidate i mean i i find you know the the problem is of course that none of the candidates offer something different in terms of politics um they only they only might be less um vulgar and less um you know kind of um, a little bit more um you know less in charge of the of of republika srpska and as a result not be able to control you know, kind of the local institutions to the same way, but um, but whether or not they're going to pursue any different politics is, is you know a lot more dubious. Since the seat is obviously shaking, we've all noticed that Dodik's talk has become a little bit well more crazy in any case. And at the same time, you have people like you said, Tsvianovich from his own party, who is a bit more mellow or at least more guarded, especially when it comes to the international community. And we'll see what she'll do now that she's a member of the presidency, first female member of the presidency, mind you. I think the, the million dollar, million euro question, if you will, million million KM question is, does Dodik have any kind of a grand plan? I mean, he's been talking about secession for, like you said, more than 15 years, 17 years. He's been constantly threatening to pull out of the state-level institutions, do this or do that, organize some sort of vote on on, on, on the Republika Srpska leaving Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is obviously impossible, given that the Dayton Peace Accord specifically prohibits this. Or is he just banking on whatever is the l'esprit du temps in the Republika Srpska? After all these years, it seems hard to imagine that he has a grand plan because we would have seen it in, <laughs> by now. Um, and, you know, and also his personality, his whole, you know, his whole approach uh, to, to me suggests very much that, that he doesn't have a, you know, a big plan because I, I think he's been very skillful at, you know, using, you know, the space uh, he has in Bosnia Herzegovina to you know maximize his power and to keep up the talk of of this referendum but you know first of all he's uh, smart enough to know that the referendum would be really you know in a certain way uh, a, a bomb which which might blow up in his mm-hmm. face um so you know i think it's something he would only be willing to do if he's got no way out um because you know in many ways He's gotten a lot um, over the years by the threats. I mean, he you know he he threatens to pull out or he pulls out for a while um, and weakens the institutions. Um, you know, talks about you know dysfunctionality of Bosnia and how it you know shouldn't exist and all of that. And that you know that has weakened the state substantially over the last fifteen years. So Bosnia is a much weaker state than it was when he came to power in two thousand and five. So he's achieved a lot, but he's achieved it without you know without. Um, being dismissed by, um, you know, by the high representative or by being kind of, 
you know, the, even the sanctions or whatever he's got are, are, are to a level that he can live with them. Um, and so he, he's aware that by going for, um, by going for full, you know, kind of full confrontation, you know, there might be, there might be a consequence which, which he can't, um, you know, which, which he can't, uh, take and which he might be, you know, he might lose his power. So from that point of view, uh, he's perfectly good with the status quo of, you know, pushing a little bit, making the state weaker, staying in power, using the nationalist card to kind of discredit, um, critics and opposition. Um, but going further, that becomes just too risky for him. And so I think this is his plan. His plan is to continue doing this as long as he can. Now, if, you know, if he is in a position where he feels like he's got no way out, um, uh, then, you know, he might do the referendum thing. But again, I think, yeah. I think especially in the context now of the, um, you know, the, the Russian aggression against Ukraine, uh, I think it's even harder because I think there's a greater willingness of Western actors not to tolerate it um, because they're, you know, they don't want to mm-hmm. have like a, you know, you know, Transnistria uh, on the, uh, you know, on the Danube or, or you know. Um, yeah. So I think from that point of view, his ability to achieve this goal is probably further away now than it was maybe five years ago when, you know, there might have been more temptation to just kind of ignore this, uh, ignore this threat. One last question, and, and and this is something that I asked in previous episodes as well of, of this series. If Milorad Dodik weren't a politician, uh, what do you think he'd be doing? Like, where do you see him? What what kind of a job would he have? Um, uh, I mean, I, I you know, I, I would imagine him, you know, running a kafana in Laktashi, you know, um, <laughs> probably, you know, maybe or maybe a gas station or something like that, you know, with one of those kind of uh, very you know, profitable businesses which have emerged. So, you know, um, I, I don't see him as the manager of a, of a, of a corporation or as a school teacher or as anything like that. So I think, you know, drinking a, drinking a rakia with his customers and, uh, telling them tall tales, um, um, mm. you know, seems like the most likely place with a few, you know, lambs, uh, grilling on a, on a, on a spit, uh, around him. I, you know, I think, his personality in a certain way he's living this life just with a bit more power it's not too terrible of an existence even if he were at the gas station uh thank you so much florian it's been such a pleasure having you on the show and i really appreciate you and your absolute experience and knowledge when it comes to the region anytime Lažne stručnjake i sve moguće strance koji su dolazili u ovu zemlju da mi sole pamet. Milo, lopove! Očuka si to! Bravo, kreteni! You are a mess, guys. You are a big mess and you are a disgrace. Teško je da će iko naći nešto vjerodostojno da će mene definirati da nisam Hrvat. Od vremena to pamtim za sebe. Mlade ljude koji odlaze će morati u velikoj meri nadoknati high-tech tehnologijama i robotikom. Šta ti radiš? Eto, mama, nešto. Jesi ti mene učio da kad pjevaš god ne misliš? Nemaš vremena, mi zbog. Protest will not stop until we achieve our main demand. Obesio bih se ovaj najveći luster ovdje. 
samo zato što sam ih bilo šta slušao.